This is Man's Search for Medicine with your hosts, Brandon Smith and Zach Pope. This podcast is a result of our desire to learn what's not being taught in medical school, but necessary to effectively help our patients. Through this learning process, we hope to excite doctors, empower patients, and challenge dogma, all while bringing humility and curiosity to the art and science of medicine. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Brandon on intermittent fasting, and we'll begin to discuss its implications for wellness and medical treatment. Here we are. Again. Back again. <laughs> Back again. Um, cool. So you're about to head out to Chattanooga. That's correct. Um, how was internal medicine? I mean, that's what you're going to be doing the rest of your life. So I hope you liked it. <laughs> the rest of my life. Just no pressure. Um, it was really good. I mean, I enjoyed my time. It was two months. I was at the VA. Then I was at Methodist. Um, got to meet some really cool people and connect with them, actually. So uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I guess I kept my fingers crossed that that was going to be a good time and experience. Mm-hmm. And it lived up to the expectations that I had set. So I think I was pretty pleased. Being in a like hospital setting most of the time, did you find that many of the attendings uh, shared similar perspectives on root cause medicine and uh, kind of a more like preventive approach? That's interesting. I mean, it's an acute care setting, the reality. Um, so I think a lot of the things that we were seeing were just addressing the problems at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes it's kind of hard to keep up with and think ahead on problems to be, I mean, you can look down the line and you can see things coming up, but I think it's harder to do when you're in more of a reactive environment than like a proactive environment. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the time we were reacting to things and like, so I felt like that was, uh, maybe we weren't the most preventive, but it was good. Okay, cool. Um, it sounds like you also ran into some attendings that, uh, were a little bit more forward thinking as far as mindset goes too, right? That's correct. Um, yeah, I mean, met a few attendings that definitely share some values and, um, I don't know, it was cool to get to connect with some of the people that were higher up that had like similar thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. What, uh, you have surgery next in Chattanooga, right? I do have surgery next. Okay. What, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you've, you've already been there, so you can, <laughs> you've already set my expectations. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Chattanooga is a good place to do surgery, whether you want to go into surgery or not. Right. Um, cause it's pretty hands-on, uh, they let you do a lot. So I think if it's the only time you're going to be doing surgery, like it will be for us, right. uh, it's kind of fun to get your hands in there and, um, it makes the days go by a little bit, a little bit more quickly. Uh, and then if you do want to do surgery, needless to say it's also a good experience to um develop some of the skills that you're going to need in residency right i mean i think that's my mindset going in is that i know that this is something i won't be doing for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. so i can go in and do it for two months and try to learn as much as i can for sure and chattanooga is just such an awesome city to be in so yeah definitely waiting to get outside yeah 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 definitely what about you what's been going on um let's see so i just finished up uh, my neurology rotation um, and, uh, it, I, I learned quite a bit. I mean, a lot of it's managing strokes, uh, and dementia 
which are things that I'm going to be dealing with a ton on internal medicine, which is what I have next. Uh, I guess like some of the big news is, um, uh, you know, I applied to a bunch of schools for my master's of public health uh, to take a year off between my third and my fourth year. And uh, I've heard back from um, almost all the schools at this point, but um, I got into um, I got into Harvard, which I'm super pumped about uh, that. <laughs> yeah, that that program is definitely like was my um, my moonshot, I suppose. Um, uh, lots of opportunities from uh, kind of a chance to cross register with some business classes at uh, MIT and the Harvard uh, School of Business. Obviously, also really excited to be at uh, the School of Public Health, where um, Atul Gawande uh, is, you know, uh, you know, faculty and um lots of big names yeah lots of lots of lots of big names uh so and just i'm excited you know i was kind of thinking about what are the things that i'm going to do while i'm up there uh but i think the reality is that i can't plan too much for that like i kind of have to get up there and uh kind of feel where i'm being pulled as far as what's going to be um the best use of my time and 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 kind of coming with some like curiosity of what, um, what's the most value that I can get from this experience and just being open to things that I, at this point don't even, uh, know exist yet, you know? Right. Um, I mean, it sounds like there's gonna be a ton of opportunities that present themselves. Yes. And the reality is going to be if you're up there for one year, like I hope you feel that pressure that there's just <laughs> yeah, one definitely year. Do. So, definitely um, do. yeah, I mean, I'm, I know you're going to get a bunch of uh, value out of that. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, through that education and, and it's a focus in management. So, um, kind of getting a firm grasp on healthcare economics, um, healthcare leadership, um, entrepreneurship, and I'm hoping to really kind of, uh, develop the skill set that's necessary to come back to Memphis, hopefully do something, um, that leaves an impact before I leave for a residency and really cultivate uh, the, um, kind of experience that I will need to start implementing these principles at scale and kind of blending these skills with, uh, integrative and functional medicine or not, not to, you know, label it, but just kind of this idea of, okay, we should, you know, root root cause prevention and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, I mean, it sounds more like a, um, I mean, you've learned and kind of thought through some of these principles and ideas, but this may be a good segue to actually learn some of the tangible skills or how to even apply them. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Cause I think in medical school, you know, I think there's been a lot of dissonance perhaps for both of us because we don't feel like we're able to create and do right. uh, that much right now. We're just kind of, uh, gleaning as much knowledge as we can, both in the conventional and um, kind of chronic disease management world. And this will really give me the, the tools to do something and to, you know, I think we both really value doing, doing, right. Yeah. We, we value moving in the wrong direction more than we do thinking in the right direction because, um, movement is, is the most important thing, you know, ship it as uh, Seth Godin would say. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to creating some, um, momentum. Nice. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's dive into this. <clears throat> looks like today we're discussing intermittent fasting. That's correct. Uh, and 
So I guess first let's start off with why why did you pick uh, this topic to become an expert in? So that's a pretty funny story, actually. Uh, maybe it was two two-ish weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our lectures on our Friday afternoons. Okay. And so this is a Friday afternoon. I went in to class. We had an endocrinologist come in. I think he was an adjunct professor. Um, he was going to lecture us on diabetes. And so he was going through management of diabetes and asking us general questions. Um, it was like, give everybody met four men. He talked a little bit about exercise and a little bit about diet, but nothing very tangible that people could take away. Yeah. Um, and he tried to make it informal, like telling us like we can interject questions whenever mm-hmm. we wanted. And a student actually asked him, um, would it make sense for people to intermittent fast? Since I've kind of heard that that might, um, end up making people more insulin sensitive. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And have you done anything with that? Um, Oh no, (laughs) I know I've set it up. Um, so essentially the response came back that, uh, I've heard of that, but I really don't know much about it. Um, I read one paper about it and it said that it increases cholesterol. Hmm. Is there more than one paper out there about intermittent fasting? (laughs) I found a few. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. I'm glad. So yeah, that was, I mean, as far as education goes, like that's yeah. Probably about the amount that we might get as far as the response to medical school. And a little bit disconcerting too, because now there's, you know, what a couple dozen med students and a couple dozen residents and other attendings who were there who heard a, you know, reputable right. bo- uh, this you know, voice. Of, this, <laughs> this is, yeah, I mean, everyone's there for their attention to be on this learning experience and that's what people are getting from it. Like they take that at face value. And now people are walking away saying, oh, like... Intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting yeah. increases cholesterol. I've heard it raises <laughs> cholesterol. Um, uh, so after that experience, it was like, okay, uh, this this deserves a little bit further exploration. I thought so. Okay. But I mean, it was also very amusing because a few of the classmates were, um, I was sitting probably closer to the back mm-hmm. and a few of the people behind me and around me, I mean, they're familiar with how I eat and they know, like they see me bringing my lunch to school and okay. like you're pretty familiar with how I I mean, um, there's the things I do overall and they were like, Brandon, say something, <laughs> Brandon, like, are you going to step in? They're <laughs> and, like looking back to see if you're triggered and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they like, they're really like chiding me on, um, okay. I didn't think it was my place to really interject and do anything like that. In yeah. That, that doesn't really, there was no benefit to anybody coming right. from that. Right. Um, so yeah. People came to me after class and kind of asked me a little bit more, which I thought was funny. But um, yeah, you could tell. And it was interesting just having students come up to me. And, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, intermittent fasting might sound kind of self-explanatory, but why don't we kind of break down the definitions here uh, so that we uh, have some consistency? Yeah. So let's start with fasting. So as far as the definition goes, it is a voluntary abstinence from eating. And usually it comes with a purpose. So it could be religious for health reasons or any other reason that you could define. Um, I guess purpose doesn't really have to be included, but usually it is there. Uh, and then, so this is going to be different from starvation in the sense that starvation is involuntary. Okay. So that's where you would draw the line between the two. Mm. Um, and as far as intermittent, um, so the definition is kind of broad and it says occurring at regular intervals it's not continuous or steady um so as far as that goes um i like 
that term, but I kind of don't like that term because you can intermittent fast at regular intervals, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is you're going to be abstaining from food at some type of interval and measuring that or trying to like hit a target okay. of some sort. So, um, and <clears throat> you brought in the voluntary nature of fasting so i guess it goes against the idea that our ancestors intermittently fasted right because they <laughs> it actually does contradict that yeah because yes they were uh you know they might not have eaten for right. 16 or 18 hours a day but it certainly didn't seem as voluntary as it is for us you know it was more right. out of like oh like this is um, this is inconvenient. There are other things that we, you know, need to be doing or, oh, we don't have access to food right now or, you know, things like this. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this kind of comes back to the whole idea that we're in this food surplus environment now that yeah. we've generated ourselves as humans. Mm. Um, nothing wrong with that. But if we're doing intermittent fasting to try to reflect what ancestors potentially did or what that looked like, um, it is artificial in a way. Yeah. Uh, because it's, they weren't actually voluntarily abstaining from food. Like mm. it, the intention wasn't the same. Right. And yeah. the environment certainly wasn't the same. Definitely. Uh, it requires a lot more intention to avoid eating now than I would you have imagine to, it does. I mean, it's easier to avoid eating food if there's no food in front of you. Yeah. Than if there's food in front of you all the time that's potentially tempting. Especially since we're literally wired to respond to that food, you know. That's why we're wired. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, subtle plug for Wired to Eat by Rob Wolf. It's a very, very good book that kind of gets into our propensity towards uh, eating food and the kind of uh, food surplus that we um, that we have. So as far as the term intermittent fasting goes, it is um, a loose definition, and you could really apply it to anything. Um, so it could look like not eating from lunch so from 12 to 1 p.m each day you don't eat um very like small amount of time but you know that could be intermittent fasting like you skip that lunch period for some reason um it could look like not eating every week like you go an entire week without eating every 12 weeks okay um or it could look like only eating breakfast um and lunch or it could look like only eating dinner there's just infinite permutations as far as like what that could look like gotcha which i mean i imagine as far as like looking forward as a therapeutic option that's kind of one of the benefits here is it's you know it's kind of infinitely individualizable right Um, and um i mean it also goes by other names like time restricted eating which kind of goes to say um so if you're saying intermittent fast you're like i'm not eating for this period of time you could also just flip it and try to define it based off of the time that you are eating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to only eat for like four hours, which would look like a 20 hour intermittent fasting protocol. Do you think there's like a pros and cons or like utility in using that verbiage versus the uh, intermittent fasting? Um, I don't know. Different different people like their different terms. Yeah. Um, I think everyone's kind of branded their own. Um, and that's what kind of makes this research and just like defining these and looking at some of these meta analyses, like there's not a standard definition for intermittent fasting or time restricted eating. And Mm. just like using multiple words to say essentially the same thing. Yeah. Kind of gets confusing. And, um, if there's not like a specific protocol, then it is harder to generalize some of these research. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, doing the probiotics research. It's like, there's not a standardized protocol, which makes it really difficult to, 
quote unquote, like prove anything when you're, you have all these different constraints or you have all these different strains of bacteria. Like it's hard to say, Oh, this is the, this is the intervention that leads to this solution. And I mean, just how we approach research and like, we'll take the fact that we have to support specific things with specific research. Um, and that's part of our duty as doctors eventually will, it's going to come down to the idea that there's going to have to be a specific study, like looking at 19 hour internet fasting, then 18 hours and then like 16 or like 20. And rather than just saying 16 hour internet fasting does this. So we can also extrapolate it to that. Like someone could get in your face and try to argue about 20, 20 hours, not being the same as 16. And I mean, they're right, but also the difference in the need to do in another study for that sake. Wasted money, perhaps possibly. Yeah. Um, so you kind of alluded to this, uh, you intermittent fast, right? I do. Yeah. Well, I guess everyone does. Right. (laughs) But, but in the tradition, in the traditional like context. Yeah. Right. Traditional. I mean, I guess intentionally more so would be intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's your like time interval? What's your kind of setup you have? Yeah. So I actually use an app. Um, it's called zero and it's basically just like a timer. Okay. Um, it tends to log like whatever it is, but it's set up. It's pretty easy. You could just like click on however long you wanted to fast for. It does like a nice countdown and a display. It's pretty cool. I think it's Kevin Rose who like designed it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That that rings a bell. Um, and generally, so I'll go five days during the week. So I'll do a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So five days of the week I will, um, fast for 16 hours. And so for me, that looks like eating breakfast and lunch which is kind of unusual given most people tend to eat lunch and dinner. Um, I've just kind of picked that and fallen into that routine from eating close to bedtime tends to throw me off and my sleep isn't as good. Definitely. Yeah. So I've just shifted my meals up in the day. And so after lunch I'll be done eating for the day during the week. And then on my Friday and Saturday, I'll go ahead and have a dinner. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and then I, I mean, I also, have to imagine that as far as recovery goes after workout, mm-hmm. at least from my experience, I have benefited more from <clears throat> having like a post workout meal yeah. instead of like delaying. Not that I was incapable of delaying for four or five hours after working out, but I certainly like recover better for the next day, which yeah. that is a priority as well. Right. Do you intermittent fast? Uh, yeah, I, you know, this is something that I have not um, been as disciplined or like consistent with, I think, as, as you have. Uh, but my typical fasting interval is similar to yours. In fact, I think that I was really doing just a 12 on 12 off. Mm-hmm. Like I was typically eating breakfast around after my workout around like 5 a.m. and then eating dinner around 5 p.m. But I found that with coming back from the hospital, that's such a, um, like varied, you know, timing. Uh, and I found that it was getting in the way of sleep and yeah. I was kind of waking up feeling a little bloated. Uh, so, and then when you visited me in chat and kind of told me about, Oh, okay. Like I've been sticking to like a 16 hour, uh, having lunch be my last meal. That's when I started to try it and really felt like it benefited me a lot from a sleep perspective. And then just a general, um, uh, well-being perspective. I, I found that, uh, I got hungry uh, less. Uh, I think my body just perhaps became a bit more fat adapted, um, if we can use that term. Uh, so, so at this point, I I pretty much eat 
uh, my breakfast, uh, and you know, my pre-workout, if we're going to consider that, cause you know, we'll kind of get into what defines breaking fast, but, yeah. um, I, I do breakfast and then, uh, lunch as well. And, and sometimes I end up having something a little bit later, but I never, I don't want to say never, but almost never get outside that 12, that 12 hour window. Cause, uh, based on the research that I've been exposed to from, uh, Walter Longo, um, on the Rhonda Patrick's, uh, found my fitness podcast, uh, 12 hours is kind of like the minimum benefit that we get. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, and I think that was probably my first exposure to listening to Rhonda Patrick. Okay. Um, I think I started out doing 12 and then bumped up to 14 and then kicked it up to 16. Yeah. So, um, I guess on top of that too, I'll throw in there that I've been trying to fast like every quarter and more of a prolonged fast. Okay. So I guess last I guess in December, um, I guess it was really before Christmas, maybe it was October, November, uh, I fasted for three days. And then this last February, I fasted for four days. So like technically like that's on some kind of schedule, mm-hmm. like for a prolonged fast. So mm-hmm. like that would also be considered intermittent fasting. Okay. Huh. I never thought of it like that. Uh, yeah, I, I too, um, I did a three day fast, um, about the same time that you did your four day fast. And I think, well, I, I have to imagine that the consistent 16 hour fast that you have done made it a bit easier perhaps yeah. to endure that four day fast. Um, I think, you know, if anyone just drops into a, a four day fast like that without the proper cellular machinery to, you know, kick into beta oxidation, um, and ketosis, I mean, that's, that's a really challenging, um, yeah. thing to do. Uh, without that kind of adaptation already having happened. Yeah. I mean, I tried to get a baseline on what it looks like for me during my 16 hour fasting window. Mm-hmm. And by the time I would wake up in the morning before going to the gym, I did have like a base, like basal level of ketones in my blood actually. So it was interesting cause I do eat low carb, probably like somewhere around a hundred grams per day. So that's kind of borderline for me being in ketosis anyway, mm-hmm. but then add on top 16 hours of fasting and, my blood ketones do kind of show up actually. Yeah. That's an interesting idea that perhaps we can get some of the benefits of, um, ketosis mm-hmm. without being on a super, super low carb diet. Uh, cause I think, I mean, Rob Wolf talks about this quite a bit and why to ease like there's, there is value to refilling our glycogen stores. Um, and, and there is value to having some circulating insulin every now and then. Yeah. Uh, so um, that, that, that's definitely something to talk about a bit more in the future, but for, for now, let's talk about some of the, let's talk about some of the benefits that, um, get brought up in the context of intermittent fasting, uh, for people who might not be as familiar with, uh, the potential benefits like the, uh, endocrinology fellow or <laughs> that you, uh, heard in lecture. Yeah. So one of the main things that kind of jumps out is, um, promoting insulin sensitivity. Okay. So that kind of stands out. Um, some people will say reverse the entire aging process. Uh, <laughs> there's definitely a spectrum of kind of realistic versus like hopes and dreams of what fasting could do for someone. Um, a lot, a lot of, um, studies and stuff that have come out and people that have been experienced and exposed to fasting have been religious yeah. and in that context. So that's a little bit different. Maybe, um, I guess it's like some appreciation for food and I don't know, just mindfulness. mindful eating. Yeah, exactly. Um, people say it will extend life. 
prevent Alzheimer's disease, improve concentration, really any like positive thing that you could think of. Like people will say that oh, it could do that. It's a panacea. <laughs> it, it cures everything. Okay. <laughs> is what you could find online. Yeah. And I'm sure like in the functional medicine world, it's something that kind of like probiotics gets like touted as this like, Oh, like everyone should be doing it. And you know, um, it, it has a purpose in all, you know, disease states and, um, who knows if that's true. I'm not really, I'm not really want to say at this point, but yeah. Um, uh, one thing that I do want to say as far as, um, like focusing on like when you're eating and why you're eating and how you're eating. Um, I mean, we always talk about the 80, 20 rule, like what is the 20% that you can do that gets you 80% of the result. Right. And I mean, the main thing that I would say is while we're going to talk about intermittent fasting and like timing of meals, uh, I think it's important like hands down just to make sure you have a high quality amount of food, like variety of food. Okay. And that's the, probably the first principle Okay. Uh, having high quality food. Okay. And, and then from and there, just taking a moment, uh, we're talking about like a diversity of micronutrients yeah. and so diversity, not processed. Okay. Really. Okay. Um, and then from there, then we can start worrying about timing and macronutrients, micronutrients, and really kind of get into the weeds as far as what we're eating. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So cutting out processed foods, probably the first step. Right. Shopping around the perimeter of the grocery store instead of in the, in center. the center. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think that would probably have the biggest benefit. Okay. So if someone, you know, walks away from this podcast without, you know, diving into the weeds with us yet, like that, that alone is, is valuable information. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So, um, I ended up looking online and trying to figure out kind of the best way to structure this. Um, I just wanted to kind of give a broad summary on what intermittent fasting was and kind of some of the like broad topics and just provide a little bit of background on it. Um, I did get into to some research and like a lot of the new research with Dr. Walter Longo and that's obviously would get very deep mm-hmm. um, on this one. I just kind of want to stay shallow and just brush over like what is intermittent fasting and are there benefits and what might the mechanisms be? Okay. And then maybe like in the future, uh, get down a little bit more into the mechanisms of how all this stuff works. Yeah. Okay. Probably some more of like what's the application for cancer and okay. like some of more of the specifics. related. Yes. Yeah. Cool. That sounds good. So one of the people who I kind of came across was Dr. Jason Fong. Um, he's actually the author of obesity code, which I think has resonated with a lot of physicians that I've met actually, mm, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. I know Dr. Draper's talked about that. Um, one of the gynocs that we worked with, Dr. Reed, had the obesity code, I believe, and he was cool. giving that to some of his patients. Cool. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting, but he's a Canadian nephrologist, um, and he's definitely a big proponent of intermittent fasting. Um, so I just want to give like a quick history on fasting, actually give a broad oh, cool. context. Yeah. So from religion... So fasting has been used for spiritual purposes and it's been pretty widely practiced. Um, definitely Christianity, Buddha, the prophet Muhammad, they all kind of had share common belief in the significance of fasting. Um, so all these different religions touch on, um, fasting. And then just from the prevalence of it, Ramadan, which is actually where people go for a month and they'll not eat from sunup to sundown. So they can eat before the sun comes up and they can eat before the sun goes down, which is kind of actually the opposite of the How, way that yeah, it gets practiced the way that, in the Western world. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but that is probably the most studied fasting pattern. Okay. Um, just given its prevalence. Okay. And looking back to just some of the ancient Greeks, I know we always like to quote Hippocrates, <laughs> who's quote the father of modern medicine. Yeah. Um, so he said to eat when you were sick is to feel, feed your illness. Mm. So I thought that was kind of an interesting quote. Um, and it felt like other Greeks kind of had the same idea. So Plutarch a little bit later said, instead of using medicine, it's better to fast today. Um, and so it kind of seemed like they had the idea that, um, and I guess maybe it was just from the observation that like when people get sick, then they kind of lose their appetite. And that's pretty true. I mean, especially coming off of working inpatient in the hospital for about two months, like if I went into a patient's room and they were eating breakfast to me, like that felt like that was a good sign. Like this patient is getting better. Definitely. So that's a good point. That's kind of a soft metric for if they're improving. It really is. Um, and so I find that interesting. Like I would always kind of note that every, every time I went in with the patient, like mm. how are they doing with their breakfast and what's mm. their appetite like? Okay. Um, so that was kind of the general principle that they kind of took from it. Um, and actually in the West, so Benjamin Franklin, said the best of all medicine is resting and fasting. I don't know who said it best. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, I have, I'm, I'm trying to pick my memory for a minute. I want to say that there's this study where this guy fasts for like over a year. Yeah. He did 382 days. Oh, okay. Wow. That's, that's a lot. So, when it's people, a world record. Yeah. Okay, good. That's, that's I was assuming so. Um, and he didn't, like, die afterward or he anything? He didn't die. He did not die. Yeah. Okay. Um, so do you know much about, like, what happened there? Yeah. Okay. So this is a 27-year-old guy. Um, he was actually in Scotland, and he wanted to lose weight. So initially he weighed 456 pounds. Uh, so he had a little bit of weight to lose. Yeah. And so... <laughs> While he was fasting, he actually went into a hospital and stayed there under medical management okay. for this time. And the only things he took was a multivitamin. He took vitamin C and he took yeast, hmm. um, which I've heard people talk about the yeast is like just being a basal source of protein, um, which. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's negligible. Yeah, it was a pretty small amount when I looked at it. Okay. Um, Do you remember, was it Saccharomyces boulardii or anything? I don't remember what okay. the strain was. Okay. Um, but. So they let him drink as much as he wanted and it could be non-caloric fluids. So mostly water. Um, and so over the time, essentially he just went for 382 days straight. Um, didn't really have any significant side effects. Um, other than that, I mean, they gave him a potassium and sodium supplement every now and then. Okay. I was wondering about that. Felt like he was feeling bad. Cause I, I mean, when I did my three day fast, I, and I was being intentional about supplementing with, um, sodium and a little bit of potassium i still felt like under like my electrolytes weren't where they should have been so i'm i'm glad to hear that he was uh receiving that yeah um the main side effect was that he had constipation hmm go figure right which it's funny because i mean the hospital like we worry about people's bowel function and how they're doing yeah but um i mean if you're not ingesting food it's kind of physiologic not to be having bowel movements yeah so like he would actually, pooping, you know, <laughs> right. So is, he would actually go about every 37 to 48 days. So mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Definitely. Yeah. It was physiologic. So definitely not abnormal, but I thought that kind of stood out. Yeah. Um, 
and then so he lost all this weight he dropped down to 180 pounds and then surprisingly after five years he stayed at 196 pounds which is pretty impressive yeah considering like most people rebound from after weight loss like that for sure huh wow so what how much weight is that that's three like 275 pounds good lord um yeah he lost at least one and a half of himself <laughs> uh okay so kind of talked about a little bit of the background history uh context let's get a little bit <clears throat> down into the uh biochemistry of what's going on here how this might be uh helping our bodies yeah so as far as the physiology goes um you start eating and you're taking in that glucose so just exogenous glucose mm -hmm. um so from that point your insulin goes up um insulin goes up so your body can take glucose into the cells actually and then so that's why we kind of have that response so insulin goes up really in response to protein and carbohydrate mm -hmm. um, and i wanted to make that point clear that fat doesn't raise insulin as well yeah um and so that extra glucose goes it gets stored as glycogen in the liver um and it can also be converted to fat in the body um so we have glucose first and then so once you stop eating, about six to 24 hours later, once your blood sugars start to drop and those cells have started to take that glucose in, your body starts to rely on the glycogen store, which is in your liver. There's about 300 grams there. Mm -hmm. So your body will start to take the glycogen, break it apart into individual molecules of glucose, and that'll start to float around. Um, your insulin levels are gonna start to come down, and then you're gonna start to burn that glycogen and make that glucose, and that's gonna keep your glucose levels pretty stable, at least for about 24 hours. Um, once you hit about 24 hours of not eating, then really 24 to two days, so the liver's gonna start making new glucose, which is a process of gluconeogenesis. And so your body's taking anything from like amino acids, um, you're not taking anything else in, and you're making new glucose. Um, as we'll see, like your body will start to upregulate lipolysis, which is breaking down fat, okay. and your body can take the glycerol, which is the backbone of triglyceride, and you can use that to make glucose as well. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, two to three days, your body's going to be increasing lipolysis, which is breaking down fat. So the fat you're going to have, the glycerol can go on into and make new glucose, gluconeogenesis. And then, so the fatty acids that are part of the triglyceride as well, those are going to go and those will be made into ketones as they're broken down. And so those will start circulating through the body. So you'll see ketones about two to three days after you start fasting. And then after that, your body can actually start to break down protein. Um, and interestingly, so growth hormone will maintain muscle mass and lean tissues. And okay. so we actually see that in fasting. Um, so other things that are going on, and we talked about free fatty acids go up while you're fasting and that's just because your body is breaking down fats. Um, glucose is going to stay at a steady state. So you're not taking glucose in, but your glucose is going to stay relatively, it'll probably be lower than what most people are normally at when they're mm -hmm. taking in uh, glucose exogenously but it will stay at like a relatively stable level from your liver making new glucose. And, and my understanding is, so red blood cells mm -hmm. 
cannot thrive on ketones. They require glucose. That's is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Red blood cells don't use right. Ketones. So so I guess that would. I mean, I my understanding is that the brain functions well on ketones. Muscles ketones. function well on ketones. The heart, especially the um, heart muscle, uh, thrives on ketones. And it's so it's really our red blood cells that <clears throat> um, need the glucose. And that's why we keep a steady state. Correct. Perhaps. Okay. Gotcha. I mean, I would also say some for brain function too. Right. Um, Just in case. And like we need, um, I have to imagine that we like to keep glucose floating around in case we need the kind of uh, glycolytic response. Right. Um, So some other interesting things that that goes up during fasting was ghrelin. So it really mediates hunger. So mm-hmm. as ghrelin goes up, you would see, um, you would feel hungry. Mm-hmm. And so through lipolysis and that process, uh, ghrelin actually comes down. Okay. So you would actually become less hungry during fasting. Um, and then you see HGH, which is human growth hormone, and it's secreted by the pituitary gland. It acts through insulin-like growth factor one. And so it's kind of interesting because people have been trying to give HGH exogenously, but then if HGH goes and act, like it's very short lived, but it goes and it activates IGF one and then IGF one acts like insulin. Um, and then so you start to see hyperinsulinemia like effects and you like, there was also an increase in prostate cancer. Um, but HGH normally declines with age. And so it's interesting to see HGH going up in a fast state and that's mm. also going to help to preserve muscle mass. So, for example, I remember <clears throat> when we were doing our prolonged fast, we made sure that we worked out every day. And granted, the intensities of these workouts were certainly not, at least for me, not as high as it normally would be. My focus wasn't like quite where it normally was. But um, I think I think it was Tim Ferriss who was initially kind of doing some experiments with prolonged fasting and noticed. I mean, he he actually did DEXA scans to measure. Um, muscle loss during prolonged fasting and noticed that just by working out, he might've supplemented with some BCAAs, but um, just by working out, he prevented muscle loss. And then same thing with Peter, um, Peter Atia as well, I believe. Yeah. I mean, just from personal experience, like I would say my workouts, I definitely toned them down maybe mm-hmm. at about 70% of what I was doing, but I definitely made sure that I was in the gym okay, doing something. Yeah. And then that also kind of goes to say that keep that HGH level up a little bit. Gotcha. Um, so I guess in addition to that, so adrenaline levels will go up, which has an interesting effect on the basal metabolic rate. So I guess when a lot of people start talking about like starvation mode and things like that, like what's happening. Um, and so here, I guess I want to make the distinction between like calorie restriction and fasting. So calorie restriction would be taking in some calories, but less than your, like daily requirements. And so in the state where you're taking in less calories than your body needs, um, adrenaline doesn't ramp up quite the same that it does when you're fasted and not taking in calories. And so through adrenaline, the basal metabolic rate does not drop with fasting quite the same way that Mm -hmm. it does when you're taking in calories. So if you're eating in a deficit of maybe 500 calories a day, which is what doctors generally tell people, like eat 500 calories less and then 
the end of the week, you're going to see about a pound of weight loss because mm-hmm. 3,000 to 3,500 calories, roughly a pound. Um, with that, uh, it's probably a little bit more nuanced than the way we're explaining to them. Because yeah. if your daily needs are decreasing, when you're already decreasing your calories, maybe you're not actually burning that many calories or you're eating that much less than where you started. But mm-hmm. if, if at the end you only are actually eating a deficit of 200 calories, you might not see that full pound weight loss at the end of the week. Um, and I guess also interesting was that bariatric surgery kind of mimicked intermittent fasting and that there was a decrease in the basal metabolic rate, but um, there are definitely complications with bariatric surgery. I, you know, it seems like, um, as a tool for weight loss, uh, calorie restriction is one of the more popular techniques. Yeah. Calories in, calories out. Yeah. Calories in, calories out. Like that whole idea, which, you know, that, that's kind of a big rabbit hole to go down, but just briefly, it seems like, okay, if the goal is weight loss, Mm -hmm. then, which, you know, I would say for a lot of people, the goal is not weight loss, but then there's a huge cohort of people where, you know, weight loss is going to improve, uh, morbidity and mortality because it's implicated in, you know, all these, um, you know, all these chronic diseases. And so, but so for them, you really want to keep the basal metabolic rate as high as you can, right? Because if you just start calorie restricting and calorie restricting, which I will say is a, an aside calorie restriction is shown to prolong life. Yes. However, if the goal is to lose body fat, you want to keep the basal metabolic rate high. And one of the best ways to do that is to add on lean mass through resistance training, through working out um, and stuff like this. So um, it, get, it gets nuanced pretty quickly, but I think um, that's an important like distinction because yes. both are strategies to lose weight or prolong life, but it's going to be an individualized approach. Yeah. I mean, it definitely depends on your goals. Um, and yeah, I mean, personally, like that's, I definitely am biased in the sense that I enjoy intermittent fasting. And mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely see the value in one, like I'm not really trying to lose weight and yeah. I've actually like have been measuring myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been about 175 pounds and I've stayed plus or minus five pounds over the whole year. Okay. So, but definitely change your body composition. So kind of right. interesting. Yeah. I'll be interested to see, like uh intermittent fasting for wellness Mm -hmm. and longevity versus intermittent fasting for therapeutic intervention for disease which uh i don't know how much of that we're going to discuss today versus uh in the future but definitely interested to have that discussion all right what's next so as we get into what's considered breaking a fast um i thought mark sisson had a fantastic article he kind of gets into the nuances of what exactly is it that's breaking a fast Um, and it kind of depends on why you're doing it. So are you trying to do, um, are you trying to promote like insulin sensitivity? Like really what's the goal here? Um, and then that's kind of what it comes down to and kind of what you're pointing at. Like diet is pretty much directed individual. Like it's such an individual thing based off of individual goals. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's why we would lean to or push away from any specific type of intervention. Um, But so he had a great article and basically if you're talking about in the sense of, um, raising insulin or increasing insulin sensitivity, then anything that is 
protein or carbohydrate is going to raise insulin and that's going to break your fast. So as far as like coffee and stuff like that, he would say that that would be totally fine. Hmm. Um, but once again, like it just kind of depends on what you're going for. Yeah. Cause I, I know uh, I actually had a, a friend, uh, DM me the other day and was kind of asking, Oh, like I'm about to do a two day fast. Can I have coffee? Yeah. And, and the answer was kind of like, well, it depends on your intention, right? Cause right. if you ask Walter Longo, he's going to say, well, no. no, if you're, if you're going for this idea of cellular autophagy, which I don't think we've talked about yet, no. but okay. We can get on um, that. we'll get, yeah. Um, then perhaps, you know, ingesting anything outside of water and electrolytes is going to get in the way of that. Yes. However, if you're doing it for, um, you know, improving insulin sensitivity and perhaps, uh, through that, you know, uh, staving off hunger for longer periods of time. And, you know, uh, for, for, uh, med students and residents, you know, being able to go into the eight hour surgery and not, you know, find your hand trembling at the end, like, having coffee is not going to get in the way of that process. I don't think. Right. Definitely not. Um, and so you kind of talked about autophagy and so that translates to eating oneself essentially. And it's how the body gets rid of older cells essentially. Okay. Um, so the main thing is that it's regulated by mTOR, which is the mechanism or mechanistic target of rapamycin. And, I like to think of mTOR as a protein that is just kind of like a sensor of nutrients in the body. Like it is a central protein and it does a whole bunch of things. Um, but when mTOR is active, so when mTOR is seeing nutrients in the cell, then, um, then autophagy is actually suppressed. So okay. you're seeing a whole bunch of nutrients. The body has a bunch of uh, supplies to grow and divide, and we don't need to really break down cells and try to create new components to make new cells um, from ourselves. So then it switches once like we have this low nutrient state, then that's going to promote autophagy. Okay. And what, you know, why is autophagy important to average, you know, whoever is listening to this? Why does, why does that matter? Yeah. So just think of this as like a cleaning out process. Like, okay. Your body has some cells that may be broken, damaged, and I mean, it, I guess it'd been implicated for like cancer mm -hmm. and autoimmune disease. Mm, okay. um, and then so things like that. And the idea is mechanistically promoting this autophagy and this like self cleaning out may prevent some of the cancer and autoimmune disease. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So it's kind of an insurance policy against <clears throat> uh, developing autoimmune disease potentially um, against cancer. And so, I mean, I, for me, like that, I mean, prolonged fasting is a pretty unpleasant thing for me to do, yeah. but the idea that this is allowing me. So when you think about what, what, and, and this is something that Peter Atia kind of often talks about is what are the things that are going to most likely kill you, right. um, by prevalence, um, it's going to be uh, heart disease it's going to be um, cerebrovascular events, so stroke. It's going to be cancer. It's going to be Alzheimer's. And so it's from an autophagy standpoint, I mean, this is really getting at for sure the cancer um, and perhaps uh, through insulin sensitivity, maybe even a little bit of like Alzheimer's, right? Yeah. No, I mean, there's definitely a bunch of like positive ways that this could go. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I mean, I got into the research and a lot of the research right now is still concluding we need to do more research. Oh, surprise there. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, a lot of this stuff has been done and seen in rodent models uh-huh. more than anything. So that's yeah. been probably like the strongest case at this point. Um, it's kind of started to move toward human studies mm-hmm. and then that's the direction that things are heading. So if you could say that fasting a mouse and like seeing this like decrease in certain things or promotion of life and lifespan, health span, even, um, that's where you'd be basing most of your support on from rodent models at this point. Yeah. I mean, you saying that makes me think it's kind of hard perhaps to implement some of these, uh, protocols in humans because it's not like taking a pill. It's not like taking a probiotic even it's you're asking someone to deviate their lifestyle. It's hard to, um, it's hard to kind of manage this and mm-hmm. convince people, I think, to uh, rearrange their life around when they're eating and not eating. Right. And I mean, some of these things, like the outcomes that you might be looking at would be like prevalence of cancer and like mm-hmm. things like that that develop over a lifetime, potentially. Yes. So, And we're so interested in these acute interventions, it might be really challenging to implement imp- something like this over such a long course of time. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because perhaps that's how it works. Yeah. You know? Um, so, but I mean, when it comes down to it, it like in my eyes, like where is like the potential benefit versus like the potential risk and harm. Mm. Um, and I guess that's kind of the way that I measure it. And, um, I mean, just personally, like, I guess I get benefits from not having to worry about dinner and I can come home from work at whatever time, not really, Oh, I got off work late today. Now I have to eat dinner late and now my sleep's going to be disrupted. And I don't know, worrying about things like that. Um, so it decreases that. And I mean, potentially going to have positive benefits like this. Um, I think it's a low risk and potentially high reward. What are, what do you feel like the risks might be? Um, I mean, hypoglycemia, I guess that's, I'm not particularly worried about that, but um, I mean, anybody that is like diabetic or trying this, Mm, that would potentially be a risk. Yes. Um, specifically type one. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I know there are people out there that take meds with, um, like meals and that's okay. kind of important to how the medicine works. Good point. So yeah. there's like specific implications that I would worry about. Um, and to people like that, I would say definitely like consult with a doctor before trying to intermittent fast. But I would say in general, like it's a pretty safe intervention. Mm-hmm. I would say most people can handle that. Yeah. Um, I agree. I think there is one important, pretty significant caveat and that's just with, uh, the kind of <clears throat> mental health epidemic yeah. and our human uh, propensity to take our anxiety and pick something to kind of fixate on. Yeah. I think there's a huge cohort of people who, uh, and I mean, I know that there's a huge co- cohort of people who use intermittent fasting and the rigidness of sk- scheduled eating mm-hmm. and allow themselves to develop disordered eating as a result and, and, kind of create this, um, neuroticism around, um, around, you know, when they're eating, making sure they're not eating outside the window and kind of getting preoccupied with it to the extent that it is caustic for their quality of life. And in fact, uh, I, I don't know how recently it was developed, but, um, I was recently kind of catching up with one of my former, um, former therapists and she was talking about how a majority of her clientele have, uh, diagnosed orthorexia, which is this idea that by 
by fixating on trying to optimize wellness and health that they are uh, actually causing a decrease in their quality of life and it's getting in the way of them uh, kind of living a quote normal healthy life because they're so fixated on these things so i could see that i could see that being an issue yeah no i mean i i like to think of it as more of like a flexibility that it provides yes so it's like empowering it is um not feeling the need to have to have a meal at a specific time or i don't know um and even if i like end up like getting out to lunch late like it comes around one o'clock two o'clock by the time i get to eat totally fine yeah Um, that's I may not hit my like 16 hours for the day, but it's, I do the best that I can and roll with it. And, and like, sometimes I, I use it just as a tool to manage my blood glucose. Sometimes I use it as a, an intentional source of kind of discipline and cultivating, cultivating the ability to kind of witness my hunger and choose not to act on it. Um, and sometimes I'm like, you know what? I have something that I want to enjoy, like a meal that I really want to enjoy with a friend and it's outside of my eating window. So, you know, like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely a case by case basis, I feel like. Yeah. And that's kind of how I treat it. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, definitely something to be said about like that, like discipline that it cultivates. Um, I mean, it feels good to do things that are kind of difficult. Definitely. Uh, okay. So I guess one more thing I do want to touch on is okay. like, refeeding syndrome Ooh, yes. which is actually very real okay so just how insulin exerts its effect um i know we talk about it with like calcium and how it drives gradients of electrolytes into and out of cells yes um during prolonged periods of fasting so phosphate is kind of implicated here okay and so most of it's stored within the bones and you get four to eight grams potentially stored through your body um so if you're fasting you're not taking anything in like your phosphorus could be low in your blood um, okay. and at that level, you're fine. Um, you're not going to be symptomatic, but once you eat and start eating after a prolonged period of time of, um, not eating. So maybe I think it's mostly implicated like in fasting for five days or more, you would want to come back and start eating a small amount. Okay. Um, so not to drive your insulin way up and push <laughs> some of those electrolytes into cells and then actually have a bad imbalance. Gotcha. And in addition to that, just anecdotally, I mean, I think that, well, we know that your diet and or lack thereof can change your microbiome profile and that affects your digestion and you can definitely have some, I'll just say unpleasant digestive symptoms following uh, a prolonged fast, Um, especially if you decide to refeed with foods that are not wholesome and (laughs) uh, supportive. So I would recommend kind of weaning in, not going too crazy too quickly with, you know, you know, Ooh, I just fasted for three or four days. I'm going to treat myself to this huge pizza kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess a recommendation that I would make is like, this is a overall, like relatively safe intervention. Um, I mean, if anyone's not eating for less than 24 hours, I would definitely say it's very safe. Okay. Um, unless you have one of those medical conditions that might be altered because of it. Um, and if you're going beyond that, I would definitely say consult with a physician. Um, and do it under a medical supervised, um, yeah, fast. And then otherwise, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting to like, no matter what type of like diet you're adhering to, like vegan, like paleo, whatever, like fasting fits into that. Mm. Um, and I think that it could play in, um, it's not going to violate any rules or like you're not eating. So you're not going to eat something that 
would violate that. Good point. So I think that it could kind of fit in and play a role. So someone could be on the SAD diet, the yes. uh, standard American diet, and still intermittent fast. Right, exactly. Mm. And I think that that type of person might be the one that sees some of the biggest benefit. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think that pretty much wraps it up as far as this like general intro. Yeah, and so I think... I think this uh, has been a kind of a good introduction to the possibilities for this as um, both a wellness oriented practice and also the potential for intervention for, and we kind of discussed a few mechanisms, insulin resistance, mTOR. And so I'm starting to kind of get an idea of how this may be used as a therapeutic intervention for things maybe like diabetes, maybe things like Alzheimer's and cancer. Um, so I definitely look forward to another conversation where we kind of break that down a bit further and get get a little bit more into the uh, nuance of the research. Yeah, I definitely got some articles that I want to talk about. Nice. That sounds good. Well, thanks for joining us for another uh, episode of Man's Search for Medicine. Yeah, we look forward to the next one. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and doesn't constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and material of the podcast is at the user's own risk. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any treatment of conditions.